we, be, we continue, rather, in a sermon series that we've called Why Church, uh, where we are going to talk about uh, some of the reasons why we believe here at Lover's Lane that the church is relevant and needed and transformative, even as culture continues to change and the way that we do church may begin to look differently in the next generation or two or certainly three. Uh, because we all know or we've heard that the church is changing. Some people are saying the church is dying. I don't believe that's true. I think that we're changing. Last week I began to make the case that I think we're returning to some of the ancient practices of the early church, before we were the church of the state, back when we were a church uh, that was in some ways, in many ways, oppressed, certainly more so than we are now today in America. But I think that we're moving into a position where we're going to have to think critically about who the church is, why the church should exist, and how do we reach a culture that increasingly doesn't really see the need to participate in a Christian community, especially when we compare our culture to a couple generations ago. Maybe that sounds like you. Maybe this is your first Sunday in a church in a while. Maybe you got dragged here by a friend or by a family member. Uh, maybe there's a big part of you that doesn't think that Christian community is really that important, and you're just kind of waiting for this morning to be over. I hope that today's message uh, can maybe begin to change your opinion. I don't expect me to, to change your opinion in the next 30 minutes, but I hope it begins some thoughts and some uh, provoking sort of thoughts and feelings. Um, in this whole message, I'd encourage you to... to be a part of, to listen to, um, as each week one of our preachers uh, brings a message that's all about why we believe the church really is relevant even as it does change. Um, today we're going to talk about, last week we talked about service and about the way that the Christian church responds to need because uh, we know that the generation that is called millennials that are now 37 to 22, right? We think of them as teenagers. We're losing our hair. Uh, millennials. And then the younger, the, the Gen Y, the, we don't know what to call them yet. The I generation, that one's super lame. That one's not going to stick. I can tell you right now. Um, but the, the generation beneath the millennials, they're coming up. And then certainly the generation that we don't even know of yet, that isn't even born yet, uh, increasingly has this desire to be missional and to serve. And so the church is going to have to respond to that. We talked about that last week. This week, uh, we're going to talk about a really big subject. Uh, and this is one of those sermons that if you've been a part of Lover's Lane for any length of time, I imagine some of these uh, themes and things are going to sound uh, sort of like things you already know. And I hope that's the case. I hope you know these things in the depth of your soul. But I think it's good some Sundays to have Sunday sermons that are kind of affirmations of what we already know and believe. I also think it's good to have some sermons occasionally that um, all of us have friends or family that struggle with the church. All of us have friends or family who don't want to walk through the doors of a church for any number of reasons. And this is one of those sermons I hope is something that you could send to a friend or a family member who has struggled with the church, who needs to hear something uh, healing or redemptive um, on the subject of how churches offer love. Because churches talk a lot about love. But I think we get that word wrong a lot. I don't think that in the history of the Christian church we've always gotten that perfectly right. And I don't think that Lover's Lane gets it perfectly right. I want to say that from the beginning. But I do think that there's a spirit here at Lover's Lane that gets it right more often than not. And I think that a guiding question for us today that I want to wrestle with as we turn towards Scripture is how does a Jesus-centered church offer love? Because we live in a world that is hurting. 
And it seems like every year, more and more, we are aware of the brokenness. We are aware of the pain. Uh, We are more aware today of the pains of the world than ever before. I mean, used to where you lived, that was pretty much your entire life, like very locally. You didn't get information beyond that. Now you can hop online and you can know about pains in the world. You can know about a synagogue experiencing an active shooter. You can know about a caravan of Hondurans. You can know about tsunamis. You can know about famines. You can know about things that will never directly necessarily impact you exactly where you live, and yet we still feel these things. And so how does the Christian church offer love to a world that is hurting, that is broken, that is increasingly aware of its own brokenness? I think in order for us to begin answering this question, we should turn to the Gospel of John chapter 13, beginning in verses 31 to 35. Now, the Gospel of John is all about love. John is sort of the different kind of gospel. You read the first three gospels, they all sound fairly similar, and then John throws a curveball. It's a totally different style of telling the story of Jesus, and love is a core theme in John's gospel. And here in chapter 13, there's some interesting things going on, but we're going to read sort of the crux of this chapter. Um, This is when Jesus is teaching something very profound to his disciples and something that we ought to hear this morning. So before we hear the words of Christ in the Gospel of John, let's turn to God in prayer and invite him to be a part of this moment. Gracious God, we know that you are already with us. We know that you were here preparing for worship before we ever arrived. You're within our lungs as we sing your praises You're within our hearts as we mourn um, our sisters and brothers from the Jewish tradition who are hurting today. God, we know that you are with us whether we come jubilant or full of sorrow or something in between. And we also know that your word is a guiding is a guiding truth in our life, especially on Sundays like these. And so, God, on a Sunday when we need to be reminded of the power of your love in the face of great darkness, would you speak to us through these words of your servant John? Make these words leap off of the screens and off of our Bibles and into our hearts that they might change the way that we live. In your sons and we pray, amen. Also, my voice sounds terrible today. I should just say that out of the get-go. So I'm really sorry if it sounds like I'm constantly hawking up a loogie, because I kind of am. Um, So you just need to know that. We're just going to get through this together. Um, And if this is your first Sunday, you're like, wow, this preacher has a really awful voice. Like, it gets better, I promise. Come next week, please. Hopefully the gunk is gone from our household. Anybody else got gunk in your household right now? Amen. Where are we at? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Aren't kids the best? Little Petri dishes. Okay. John says this, when Judas was gone, so uh, Jesus has just predicted the betrayal of Judas, and Judas uh, leaves. He doesn't name it, but Judas leaves. He doesn't name Judas in that prediction, but Judas leaves. When Judas had gone, uh, Jesus said, now the human one has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify the human one in himself and will glorify him immediately. 
Little children, I'm with you for a little while longer. So this whole glorifying him and and, in him and all this sort of ethereal talk, if it sounds confusing, it's supposed to be. Jesus is like predicting how this is all going to end. And so the, the disciples are confused too. So if you're a little confused by his language, you're exactly where the disciples are. He says, little children, I'm with you for a little while longer. You will look for me, but just as I told the Jewish leaders, I also tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. So he's predicting his death and resurrection. I give you a new commandment. That's, that's profound. God's the one that gives commandments. And now Jesus is, is assuming that position. He says, I give you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you must also love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say thanks be to God. Amen. So I read this passage, and, and I read this, you've likely heard, even if you've not spent much time in the Gospel of John, you've likely heard this, I give you new commandment, love each other. People will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love each other. You've maybe sung the song, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love, right? We, we, we've heard these words before. Today I want to look at, at these words in light of the larger story in chapter 13 of John's gospel because uh, remember that nothing in the Bible takes place on its own, right? Nothing can be just plucked out and examined on its own merits. You have to look at it within the larger story. And what looks like at first just this simple command to love each other, when you look at the model that Jesus is setting in, in chapter 13, you realize just how pro- profound what he's saying truly is. Last week I talked about the differences between dead church and Jesus-centered church. I want to continue with that theme today. The first thing I want to say is this. Dead church is built on conditional love. I'm willing to bet you've been to dead churches before. Or maybe a friend has been to a dead church before. Or maybe a family member has been to a dead church before. Dead church is built on conditional love. Jesus-centered church is built on unconditional love. Now why do I know that is true? I know that it is true beyond a shadow of a doubt because I understand exactly what Jesus was saying because I understand what happens before and after this passage. Did you notice at the beginning it said, it said Judas left, right? And I said right before what we just read, Jesus predicts his betrayal. And if you don't know anything about the story of Jesus or you don't know anything about the story of Judas, uh, let me spoil the ending for you, Okay. Um, Judas is one of the 12 disciples. He ends up betraying Jesus by handing him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. Judas does the one thing that you would think would be unforgivable, and yet Jesus knows it's going to happen. And then immediately after this passage, Jesus predicts Peter's betrayal. If you don't know who Peter is, Peter is one of the 12 disciples. He's sort of the leader of the disciples. In fact, he's the one that Jesus says, I'm going to build the church on you, Peter. You are going to be my rock when I leave this place. And he also knows that Peter is going to deny him three times after he's taken into custody. I know that Jesus-centered church is built on unconditional love because Jesus chose Judas and Peter to be disciples knowing full well how broken they truly were. Judas's betrayal didn't surprise Jesus. That didn't come out of left field. Peter's denial didn't surprise Jesus. It's not like he said, oh, I'll build my church on you, and then Peter denies him and says, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Never mind. 
Jesus reaches out, steps into the lives of Judas and Peter, knowing full well from the beginning that they are deeply flawed and broken individuals who will hurt him in deeply upsetting ways. If I was Jesus, I would not have included Judas in my tribe. I would have been much more conditional in my love. I would have been looking for disciples in my little, like, Terminator vision, right? It would identify people. Nope, he's going to betray you. (laughs) Never mind. Not that guy. I don't want him in my group. Absolutely not. And that's not what Jesus does. Because Jesus is better than me. Somebody say amen. (laughs) Thank you, Stan. This is your first Sunday. That would be the senior pastor heckling me from the back of the room. It is a normal Sunday in Thrive. I love that Jesus is setting the tone for who the church should be by setting the tone of unconditional love and by making us aware that God's love is not dependent on our brokenness or our health. Now, this might seem like a really basic, basic point, and if you've come to Lover's Lane for any length of time, I hope you've heard this before, but let's remind ourselves that not everybody here has been here for a while. This might be your first Sunday here in a long time. This might be your first Sunday ever. Maybe you're sending this message to a friend or a family member. If you've never heard this before, I want you to hear this. God's love is not dependent upon your brokenness or your health. Just because you feel like you are broken or beyond repair does not mean that God pulls back. God brings us in close knowing full well our imperfections. I need to be reminded of that all of the time. Because guess who is more aware of my imperfections than I think anybody else? Me. Anybody else, are you more aware of your imperfections than you think anybody else possibly could be? Do you ever doubt or question that God could love you in the midst of your imperfection or your brokenness? My God, all of the time. And yet I look at Jesus and how in the middle he says, love each other just like I've loved you. Right after he predicts his friend's going to betray him, right before he predicts his friend's going to deny him, he says, this is the kind of love I'm talking about. It's an unconditional love. And it's not built upon who we once were or who we're going to be. See, some of us think that God used to love us more than God loves us now. Or some of us think that one day when we're better versions of ourselves, God's going to love us even more than he does now. I would love to tell you today that you're a liar. That is not the way that God's love works. Last week, we talked about how Jesus in the Gospels calls us to be radically aware of the present. This is a theme throughout the Gospels. Pick one, doesn't matter. Jesus is constantly calling us to be aware and attuned to the present. And God's love works very much the same way. God didn't love you more in your past. Remember those glory days? The best you ever were when you peaked? I remember when I peaked. I was like 23. I married Reagan. I peaked. (laughs) God didn't love me more back then. You know that, that, that version of yourself that you're striving towards that you hope you can be one day? God won't love you more in the future. God loves you fully right now here in the present. 100% today. Can you accept that? Can you live in that? Can you accept the peace and the comfort that that provides? God loves you fully exactly where you are right now. That's the first thing that I see in this scripture. The second thing that I know after wrestling with this text this week. Dead church, dead church loves when it's convenient. 
But Jesus-centered church loves when it costs us something. Have you been to a dead church before? Dead church loves when it's convenient. Jesus-centered church loves when it costs us something. I know this to be true because I've wrestled with this text this week. At the very beginning of John's gospel in the 13th chapter, earliest in the chapter, there's this beautiful scene of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Have you read this before? Are you familiar with this if you're not? Jesus is the master of these disciples. He's the teacher. And normally in in the society in which they live, the teacher would be served by the students. They would do everything for the teacher, right? And in these days, you walked around in sandals or maybe even barefooted, and so your feet would get pretty gross. And one of the lowliest jobs a servant could have would be to wash the feet of their master because that was just not a comfortable place to be. Anybody else hate feet like I do? Like, I understand this story very well. It hits home with me because I can't stand feet. Foot washing sounds gross. And at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus gets on his knees. He He rolls up his sleeves. And he takes his disciples' feet in his hands. He takes Judas's feet in his hands. He takes Peter's feet in his hands and he washes them. He doesn't do this because he believes in hygiene, right? He does this because he's trying to model for them what Christian love and Christian service and Christian leadership look like. He's trying to flip the script on what it means to be a leader and a disciple in the Christian movement. He's trying to show them that the love of God is going to lead us into places that dirty us, that humble us, that make us appear to be less than, that put us in positions we might rather not be. And yet Jesus says that's exactly where God's love is going to lead you. He's modeling this style of love before his disciples. And he knows, because I think Jesus knows that modeling is an important leadership skill, right? Leaders in the room, pay attention. What you say doesn't matter a whole lot. What you do matters a whole lot more. And if you don't believe that's true, have a toddler, right? Andy is totally in the monkey see, monkey do face, so Reagan and I have to be really, really attuned to how we behave because we're trying to raise her up into being a good, upstanding Christian Texan woman, right, Reagan? Yeah. Um, I say Texan because uh, the other day Reagan said she was driving down the street and Andy rolled down her window, which she loves to do when we, forgot to, when we forget to put the window lock down. She just loves to, she uses her foot. She's like, you know, and uh, gets it going down. And she has this trash in her hands. She just goes, yoink, right out the window. And Reagan's like, what? You know, and that hurt my heart because I was like, baby girl, you don't mess with Texas. You don't mess with Texas. Can we stop for a second and talk about how crazy that ad campaign is? That in the face of, like, anti-littering, like, littering, right, Texas' response is like, if you litter, we'll beat you up. Don't mess with Texas. Like, whoa, Texas, calm down. Like, I'm against littering, but whoa. That's just a little bit of window into the craziness of Texas culture. And I do admit, Texas is a little crazy, crazy Reagan. Uh, but, but Andy is learning what to do based not only off of what we say, but what we do. If we say, Andy, don't litter, but we're tossing stuff out the window, right, then what we say doesn't really matter. If Jesus says, love each other and humble yourselves, but he still treats them like a master is supposed to treat his servants, then does that really take root in their heart? Do they understand what he means by that? 
And so Jesus chooses to model what a self-sacrificing, humble, getting-in-the-dirt kind of faith looks, looks like. Reagan and I had a foot-washing ceremony as a part of our wedding, which tells you how much I love her. Um, and um, actually, she loves me a lot more because I was wearing Toms, and so I had like foot stank going on. I was like, you sure about this? She's like, I love you or something. I don't know. Um, no. So we had this foot washing ceremony uh, as sort of a sign and a symbol of the kind of love that we wanted to have for one another, this sort of self-sacrificing, both of us submitting to each other kind of a love. Um, and when I was reading this scripture this week, it reminded me of that, and it, and it, it reminded me of that in, in a way about the church, too, because Jesus talks about the church in a way that is, uh, he uses the bridegroom and the bride imagery about himself and the church. And, and, and yet when Jesus talks about it, it's very much in this self-giving, sacrificial love. As the bridegroom, he doesn't lord over the bride in a demeaning way, but in fact, he serves the bride. He sacrifices himself. He submits himself to the world, to the people, even to the point of death. And yet somewhere in the last 2,000 years, we've adopted this culture of Christianity that says we should be Christian as long as it's convenient, until it costs me something, until it means I have to rethink what I know, until it means I have to change the way that I want to live. I want to be Christian as long as it's convenient, as long as it fits into what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, and how I think, and what I believe. I don't want something that actually is going to challenge me. And yet, in response, Jesus gets on his hands and his feet, and he washes our feet, and he says, this is what your love should look like. It's not convenient. It's sacrificial. And here's what I know about convenient Christianity is that if the church only loves people when it's convenient, if we are only going to extend love to people as long as we don't have to get on our knees and as long as we don't have to get our hands dirty, as long as we don't have to humble ourselves, as long as we don't have to admit that we were wrong and that our love needs to change, as long as we are going to be a church that only loves people when it's convenient, when it's convenient, we will only attract people who are Christian when it's convenient. You want to know why people are leaving the church right now? It's not because they're mad at the church. It's because they don't care. And honestly, it's not that convenient. Because the NFL pregame show is on. And, you know, I need to watch that, I guess. Or my kids got soccer. And no offense to people who have kids that play soccer. That's why we have streaming. We understand that the church can meet new needs. But my point is this. If we view Christianity as something that we fit in whenever we can, that we do whenever it feels comfortable, that we take up whenever it's convenient, then we should not be surprised that the church continues to shrink and to shrink and to shrink. Because guess what? Ultimately, the Christian message is not convenient. That's the problem. The gospel is not convenient. And so if the church says it should be convenient and the gospel very clearly is not, then people are going to get confused they're going to leave. Does that make sense? I think the Christian church has to be better about loving people when it costs us something. About putting our hearts on the line, about getting our knees and our hands a little bit dirty, about being the humble servant again. And if we model that kind of a love for the world around us, I think like the disciples, they will be compelled by that kind of a vision of love. Do you agree? Amen? Here's the last thing that I know. 
after wrestling with the scripture this week. Dead church talks about love. I've been to a lot of churches that talked about love. But Jesus-centered church is known by love. Jesus says in chapter 13, verse 34, or verse 35 rather, this is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. When you wear my t-shirt. No. When you have the right bumper sticker. No. When you yell loud enough. No. They will know you are my disciples because they see your love when you love each other. So, Reagan, can you hand me the... So there's something weird happening tomorrow. Tomorrow we have... 4,500 of these things showing up at our church. This is a book that Stan and I wrote together, um, that Stan invited me to write with him, I should say. Um, and, and this is a story that, that is not really Stan and my story. Um, our names are on the author line, but this is the story of Lover's Lane. And the reason we have 4,500 of these things showing up tomorrow is because we're actually going to ship them back out. Now, there's going to be some at the bookstore if anybody wants to buy them. But we're sending these books um, to delegates uh, throughout our world. Um, Now, this is something, if you're a first-time visitor, like, buckle up. You're about to get a crash course in Methodism. Um, So in February, there's a really big, important meeting coming where delegates, about 600-some-odd delegates from around the world, everywhere from Texas to California to the Philippines to Zimbabwe and in between, Delegates from around the world are going to gather in St. Louis, and they are going to engage in debates and in voting around um, something called the One Church Plan, which is a vision for who the Methodist Church could be after arguing over issues related to uh, homosexuality and inclusion of LGBT people for the last 40 years we've been arguing about this, like many denominations have. And we're at this really critical point where we think we have a path forward. And there's a lot of anxiety, as you could imagine there would be for a global denomination. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions about legislation, There's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions about what we should do. Um, And yet Stan and I felt convicted earlier this year to tell the Lover's Lane story. Because this church is not perfect. In fact, I think Stan says that in the very first paragraph of like the introduction. (laughs) We make that very clear. Lover's Lane is not a perfect church. But we believe that the people of Lover's Lane, that would be you. Tell a story simply by who they are, by who you are, and by who we are together. That the people of Lover's Lane have something to say on the subject of being a big church that lives in diversity, that lives in tension, and that when we surround ourselves around a cross and find a central mission and vision, we can do amazing things despite our differences. Now, if you're a member of Lover's Lane and you know that's true, say amen. So this is not Scott and Stan giving our opinions about what the church should do. This is Scott and Stan, Stan and Scott, telling the story of Lover's Lane. Putting this church into the spotlight for a moment to say, drawing the circle wide and having a big tent truly is possible and should be possible 
in this, the 21st century, when we're trying to reach the next generations who are wondering how big the church's love is really going to be. Can we love Republicans and Democrats? Can we love people of different ethnicities and nationalities? Can we love old fuddy-duddies and crazy new wave hippies, right? Can we love the old and the young? Can we love the gay and the straight? Can we love women and men? Can we love children and youth? Can we really do this? And this book is our humble attempt at saying yes, not because Stan and I individually believe it, but because we have seen it in action here at Lover's Lane. So we want, I want you to know that your story is about to become one that is read throughout the world. And, and we don't know if it's going to make any difference in the conversations in February, but we pray that it does. But more than that, we pray that pastors and churches can read this book and can see that there is hope. That there are churches that are not perfect, but are getting this right, I believe. And so I want you to know, um, as I was preparing for this message, I felt kind of silly standing up preaching a sermon about love to the people of Lover's Lane. Because I got to tell you, after getting the news yesterday about the shooting in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, um, immediately it was heartbroken as all of us were. I was heartbroken just as a human being. I was heartbroken as a person of faith. I, I had this, what I would say, an extra degree of heartbreak as a faith leader, as a pastor who loves his flock and cannot imagine being violated in that, to that kind of degree. I want to say I'm thankful for our police officers who are here every Sunday who make sure that we are as safe as we can be. And I want to say to the people of Lover's Lane, there's not another place I'd rather be on a Sunday morning after a Saturday like yesterday. Because I knew that when I walked in these walls this morning, I would find Republicans and Democrats hugging. Old people, young people hugging. Zimbabweans, Liberians, Americans hugging. English speakers, Shona speakers, Spanish speakers hugging. Christians, agnostics, not quite sure what I am, maybe this, maybe that, hugging. I knew that I would find love in this place. And so where I want to land on this sermon today is that this church teaches me as much about love as I hope we've been able to talk about today. And that we will be known as the hands and feet of Christ, we'll be known as the heart of God, not because of the messages we preach, not because of the books that we write, but because of the love that we express to the people around us. And I'm so thankful for this church. I'm so thankful for you for giving me a place that I can come and be reminded that God's love is big enough. That though tragedy can strike, God's love is big enough. That God's love is strong enough. And that though we have days of darkness, God's love truly is, I believe this, that God's love is going to prevail in the end. Do you believe that? I believe that. Not simply because someone told me about it, but because I experience it every single Sunday and the days in between from you, the people of Lover's Lane. So thank you for offering your story to your pastors. Thank you for the witness that you are going to bear to our denomination. I would ask that if you're not already, be in prayer 
for our denomination. If these conversations interest you tonight at 5 p.m., Stan, myself, a pastor named Rachel Bachman, and another pastor named Jane Grainer are going to be up on this stage. We're going to be talking to the delegates from our North Texas annual conference. And we're going to be sharing with them why we believe this one church vision for the Methodist church is possible and good and a righteous thing. Um, and so if you'd like to hear that, I encourage you to attend. Uh, we, would, we would love to see you here. Um, and with that being said, I just want to say one more time, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a light for me, your pastor. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks for a church that we can call home, that we can come to on Sunday and feel safe. But more so, a place that we can come and be in relationship with persons that we might not otherwise meet. But your love has drawn us together. And through your love, you are perfecting us, though we are not perfect yet. God, as we go from this place into our lives this week, Remind us that it's not always what we say, but it's certainly what we do. And that love is not just a thought or a feeling, but also an action. That you didn't love us more once before. You won't love us more in the future. You love us fully here and today. God, help us to receive that this week. Work on our hearts and our souls this week. Remind us that we are dearly beloved children as we are. God, lead us in a Christian faith that costs us something. Allow us to place convenience on the altar for the sake of your name. And God, help us to be the church not just while we're in the walls of this place called Lover's Lane, but when we are in your world. May our actions give witness to a love so big and a love so strong and a love that costs us something. May it be a love that people stop and say, I need to know more about a love like that. Help us to share this love family and friends we know who need it, and with the stranger whom you send to meet us on our way. All this we pray in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.